In June, the Prime Minister of India Modi's visit to the White House made the headlines. Meetings with tech CEOs followed this visit, and not long after, the B20 summit in India hosted the global business community. It's clear that the country is moving to the center of conversation on the global stage. In the last six years, India's business environment rankings rose 10 places among the 82 countries, assessed by the Economist Intelligence Unit. India is also on its way to becoming the third largest economy by 2028, surpassing Japan and Germany, and having the largest stock market by 2030. According to the World Economic Forum President Borga Brandi, reforms around less red tape, better climate for investments, and digital revolution are driving these developments. On the other hand, challenges remain for businesses and investors interested in the market. The global economic uncertainty centered around tighter credit conditions, inflationary pressures, geopolitical crisis, and supply chain reconfigurations may weigh on growth. Despite these headwinds, a 2023 Economist Impact Survey showed a positive sentiment among the C-suite executives regarding India's ability to ride this uncertainty. Expanding investments will be crucial in maintaining the country's favorable position for investors. To achieve this, India needs to keep improving regarding ease of doing business and governance transparency, which resurfaced with the recent Adani scandal. Transforming the infrastructure to meet the needs of a growing economy is also key. Welcome to Asia Perspectives from Economist Impact. I'm Bilyarslan. You're listening to the seventh episode of the series, Shelter from the Storm, Investing in the Era of Uncertainty. In our previous episode, we discussed how investors can leverage the investment opportunities artificial intelligence offers in Asia-Pacific while protecting from risks. In today's episode, we will focus on how the investment landscape has been evolving in India and discuss the risks and opportunities that await investors. The podcast series is supported by Equities First. The opinions of our guests are their own, and editorial control remains with Economist Impact. Two guests are joining us today to share their expertise on the topic. Joining us here from Singapore, we have Timur Baik. Timur heads global economics as well as macro-strategy for interest rate, credit, and currency at DBS Group Research. He also advises the bank on risk management and investment strategy. Timur has published extensively in areas including financial technology, frontier markets, and financial market contagion. Timur, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Ben Matias is managing partner at Vertex Ventures Southeast Asia and India, an early stage venture capital firm. He has overall responsibility for the firm's investments in India and is on the investment committee for the Southeast Asia Investments. He focuses on investments in consumer internet, enterprise technology, fintech, digital health, mobility, and sustainability. Great to have you join us today, Ben. Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. 
We witnessed that significant improvements in transport, digital, and energy infrastructure during Modi's administration is one of the drivers of India's growing prominence globally. These developments make India an attractive business partner, considering firms' China Plus One strategy as well. The country also has the advantage of a young workforce and expanding middle-class consumers. This being said, India is a vast country and one of the most diverse lands with 28 states and 8 union territories. So I'm curious, which parts of India are more attractive to investors and businesses and why? For instance, the government of Rajasthan has launched Invest Rajasthan, an investor outreach program that actively solicits and processes investment proposals. Maybe we can start with you, Timur. It's a very interesting time for India. And for long-time India watchers like us, I covered India for the IMF way back about 18 years ago. It's almost like a sense of deja vu. And at that time, we saw India's software exports surge 20, 30% on a year-on-year basis, which basically laid the foundation of the services excellence that India maintains today. India has built infrastructure, has built excellence in services for decades has been aspirational about manufacturing. But on the manufacturing side, stars are aligning, investor sentiment is favorably predisposed toward India. And that's what's bringing a lot of attention in. Would you like to add anything, Ben? What we've seen in the last few years is the India investment opportunity has gone up dramatically. And this is being driven by several factors. The GDP growth has been over 7% on average for the last few years. And what this is resulting in is the per capita income is now $2,500 per person and is going to grow to $4,000 in the next few years. Now, this is driving a lot of domestic consumption. More importantly, in the last few years, the consumption is being done online. We're also investing behind the software economy where India has probably the largest English-speaking software development population in the world. And these people are creating software for global markets. The Indian government has also been putting in place investor-friendly foreign domestic investment policies. In 2020, it increased the FDI limit from 49 to 74% under the automatic route. So prior government approval isn't needed. And up to 100% through the government approval route within the defense sector. So my question here is, what avenues for financing are available and considered by investors in India and why? How do various investment strategies such as stocks and bonds compare to each other? Ben, what do you think? Yeah, so their venture capital and private equity has been growing in India over the last few years. The Indian stock market has actually done better than most of the large stock exchanges in the world, including Nasdaq, Nikkei, etc., This is in 2023. It's expected that in the next three to four years, we'll get more than $200 billion of foreign direct investments in the country. For example, the Make in India government policy, where they're encouraging people to manufacture in India. This has driven a lot of investments in the manufacturing sector. And Timur, would you like to add anything? You'd be maybe surprised to know that India's net FDI has not changed in the last 15 years. It's been 2% of GDP or less. In fact, in the last couple of years since the pandemic, it's actually been on a downtrend. 
So India has to sort of go into the big boys world, if you will, in terms of attracting flows, sustained, lumpy, large flows, not a few hundred million here and there, but 50, 60, 70, 80 billion dollars a year. Ben, you have experience working in the venture capital sector, including investments in India. We see that India's share of venture capital private equity investments in Asia-Pacific grew from 15% in 2021 to 20% in 2022. India is PE giant Blackstone's biggest market in Asia. So Ben, how promising are Indian VCP markets? And what are some of the headwinds that investors need to look out for, in your opinion? So definitely the venture capital industry is very bullish on India. We are seeing investments happening in new brands that are targeting millennials and Gen Zs. There's also investments happening in technology companies like fintech, where platforms for digital lending, digital insurance, and then also sectors like B2B commerce, B2B services are getting a lot of attention. Now, in terms of headwinds, there was probably too much capital that was deployed in India and a lot of startups were given far more capital than they actually needed. And as a result, they built businesses that were fundamentally inefficient. So I expect of companies that are either shutting down or restructuring or, or laying off a lot of people. But by and large, I think the startup ecosystem here is fairly robust. Let's look at India's development path now, which is quite unique. It's a service-led development specifically through large tech services companies and global capability centers. The service sector accounts for 40% of the country's exports. Now, the government aims to revitalize the manufacturing sector by establishing initiatives such as Make in India and the Production-Linked Incentive Scheme. On the other hand, Foxconn pulled out of a 19 billion US dollars chip making project in India in July, which was a setback to the government's ongoing efforts to transform India into a tech manufacturing hub. To what extent are these government schemes effective in attracting business opportunities to India? I guess my question is, do they provide a sustainable growth strategy for the country and what is stopping development? Timur, what's your view on this? Former Reserve Bank of India Governor Raghuram Rajan had said that before making India for exports, India probably should focus on make for India. It's a huge country, huge consumer base. So from a country that runs a large current account deficit, just the wisdom of producing domestically for domestic consumption itself would be a very big thing. But to do that large manufacturing, the experience of East Asia, what does it tell us? You need a young, educated workforce. You need a healthy workforce. So to me, government incentives, tax structures, production parts, it's all great, but that's the hard infrastructure part. Even more challenging is to make sure that we have a healthy and well-skilled population. Lots needs to be done in that area. Ben, would you agree? In addition to the incentives that the government is providing for manufacturing in the country, the private sector is also driving a lot of things. So I'll give you one example, which is the toy industry. So government policy has very strict licensing regulations about importing of toys from China into India. As a result, 
any e-commerce company that sells toys now needs to source locally. And so they are incentivizing local manufacturers to manufacture toys. This has been driven by the private sector and indirectly by the consumers that want to go on Amazon, Flipkart, etc., and buy toys. And these e-commerce companies are now driving the manufacturing of it. Similarly, this trend will happen in other industries such as electronics. There are also SME-focused schemes such as the Credit Guarantee Trust for micro and small enterprises and the Raising and Accelerating MSME Performance Program. Are these initiatives effective to level the playing field for MSMEs and what can the Indian government do to better support them? Taimur? I personally believe that South Asia, not just India, but elsewhere as well, there are outstanding non-government organizations which have, through the microcredit approach, provided important credit to a wide array of rural as well as semi-rural, small and medium-sized enterprises. If we are going to have a supply chain like the way of Japan or China, where a car ecosystem has hundreds and hundreds of companies, both large and medium-sized around that, maybe then there is an element of industrial policy and directionality of credit by the government sort of nudging banks and non-banks toward providing that might be useful, but I would like to see it actually more organically developed as opposed to top-down, which is there is no financial repression, which means that you know the government doesn't guide interest rates too much, that there is not a lot of capital control, both inflows and outflows. It would require a great degree of FX flexibilities. Would you agree, Ben? The private sector has a big role to play. We are seeing a lot of startups that are building digital front-ends for SMEs to access credit it's possible to access potential borrowers in all parts of the country through UPI, through digital apps. Anything, any information that's required by the bank or by the lender can all be uploaded. It then goes through software that assesses the risk and then makes a decision on the loan in a matter of minutes. And so that is what is transforming the ability for the SMEs to access credit. Skilling has come up in our conversation earlier. I want to go back to that topic. Upskilling and reskilling is one of the challenges as well as priorities for the Indian government. To give an example, Skill India is a government campaign to bridge the skills gap in preparation for rapid industrial transformation. The service-led development has mostly benefited high-skilled labor. Can India expand its manufacturing sector to create more equal opportunities for a larger pool of labor? What do you think, Timur? Basic literacy and basic health is as important as the quote-unquote skills, coding capability or English capability. The first and foremost thing is the aptitude to learn. So that's where I think sometimes we miss the plot. China's excellence has been the high-accuracy assembly packaging, and testing. These are three very large components of mass manufacturing. I think India probably has a decent enough workforce to embrace the first wave of investments. To go to the China scale would require redoubling one's efforts on the building blocks that I'm talking about. It would require much more work, not the existing taco population, but rather today's 10-year-olds, 15-year-olds. Thanks, Taimur. Speaking of labor... In 2020, India passed labor codes to streamline labor legislations across states. 
For instance, the reforms aimed at lifting the strict limit on layoffs, which deters startups from expanding in the country. However, their implementation has not been very effective due to resistance from some states. How does this impact overseas businesses' decisions to operate in India? I guess my broader question is, when it comes to doing business in India, is there a lack of coordination between central and state governments? If so, how does this impact the business and investment environment? Ben? The policy, for the most part, is driven by the central government and the state government's don't necessarily determine the policy that would attract investments into the countries. Now, where the state governments come in is giving approval to set up a large manufacturing plant in the state. The policies that are being driven by the central government apply to the entire country. So for the most part, it doesn't really matter which part of the country you come into. Timur, would you like to add anything to that? So what the government has tried to do over the last few years is to consolidate labor laws. But To get all the states to own up to that, it's not that straightforward. You got to bring them together where there's a broad-based consensus. You also have to understand that states are not, by definition, all on the same page with respect to approach to laborers. We see this in federal systems all over the world, and I think that savvy investors, global multinationals, fully understand and appreciate that. So I don't think that uniform labor code is a prerequisite toward getting strong investment. The podcast series Shelter from the Storm, Investing in the Era of Uncertainty, is supported by Equities First. A word from our sponsor. Equities First is proud to celebrate 20 years of pioneering progressive capital. We provide access to liquidity in 33 equity markets at favorable terms, while our partners retain 100% of the equity upside appreciation. Your interests are aligned with ours for the long term. Equities First is your solution for redefined financing. For more information, please visit equitiesfirst.com. We mentioned the importance of infrastructure along with human capital earlier. We see that challenges around energy and logistics infrastructure illustrated time to time by power outages and lack of accessibility and transportation are some obstacles hindering the ease of doing business in India. The country has been taking steps such as intermodal transport projects, the Gatishate Mission, and the Sagarmala project for waterways. How effective are these initiatives? How can India ensure adequate investments and coordination for similar initiatives? Ben? Let's start with you. We're seeing a lot of investments in public transportation. There are power plants, sewage treatment plants being set up all across all the cities. I would also add to that the digital infrastructure has also improved tremendously in the last few years with the deployment of broadband and 5G. Let me focus on that electricity infrastructure. The country has to import a lot of fuel, oil. Uh, It produces coal, but at the same time, coal is very brown has all sorts of you know, negative connotations around it. So we're talking about like three dozen coal-based thermal power projects in India, which are under stress, which of course means the banks who have lent money to them are under stress, $20, $25 billion worth of bad loan in India's power sector alone. So the banks are in a decent 
place to help the power sector restructure. I don't think there will be too many foreign investors eager to get into India's power sector. I'm also very keen to see how India starts redistributing its power grid between solar and wind and perhaps even nuclear. India has made pledges toward net zero, but its national electric needs are also so large. I don't think it can go away from brown to green in a day or even in a decade. Let's now move to another popular topic. India has been pushing for settling international trade in rupees to get rid of dollar conversion and cut transaction costs. As a positive case, it signed an agreement with the United Arab Emirates. On the other hand, India and Russia have recently suspended efforts to settle bilateral trade in rupees after long negotiations. My question to both of you is whether the Indian rupee is ready for the world stage and what are some of the potential downsides for businesses interested in trade settlements in rupees? Countries have to accept the fact that globally trade is invoiced in US dollars. Replacing one hard currency with another, how does it solve matters? The idea is that if only we were not using US dollars, there'll be less pressure on our reserves, there'll be less pressure on the currency. No, it'll just manifest in a different way. The basic concept is, does a country run a current account deficit or not? It has nothing to do with which currency is being used. If you import a lot more than you export, your currency will be under pressure. You can use all the swaps in the world. It will still be a drag on your reserves, on your purchasing capacity. Now I want to shift our focus to India's trade relations a bit. In 2019, India pulled out of the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership after being part of the negotiations for seven years. RCEP is the world's largest trade agreement between China and 14 other Asian countries. On the other hand, India and the United Kingdom have recently concluded the 11th round of free trade agreement discussions. So in your view, what are some of the reasons why India was hesitant to take part in RCEP? What is India's strategy towards free trade agreements? And should investors be concerned about this approach? India runs a very large deficit vis-a-vis China. And the view was that under RCEP, where a lot of trade barriers have to be removed, that India would be even more overwhelmed. India has a long protectionist past. It did open up somewhat in the 90s and 2000s. The average tariff India has came down gradually, let's say, from the late 1980s toward the end of last decade. But then the Make in India campaign has actually been associated with also a gradual rise in tariff. How do you make in India? You have to discourage import. You make imports more costly by pushing up tariff. So far, however, it hasn't manifested in manufacturing revolution that we want to see. The data says it very clearly. Countries that have tried to grow their manufacturing by creating a huge wall of tariff, generally speaking, haven't really succeeded. So I can't really see where India is going with that. Let's now talk a bit about geopolitics. India has been engaging in a balancing act by maintaining ties with America, China and Russia through different strategies. I want to know more about how businesses and investors should interpret India's geopolitical strategy. What kind of risks and opportunities does it bear for them? 
Nobody in the world can predict where any of these dynamics are going to evolve, which is why we are seeing companies sort of give up on the holy grail of just-in-time inventory management and single-source suppliers for efficiency and cost savings to a wider note of manufacturing, quote-unquote, de-risking of their supply chains. The sad bottom line is that no amount of de-risking is actually going to lead to the way things war in terms of global productivity, potential growth. All these frictions that we have now around trade war, China plus one, the nearshoring and friendshoring and all those things, these will all add to the cost of doing business. These will all manifest in excessive capacity, price wars, pressure on margins. It's tragic in many ways. It will certainly be detrimental to global growth and global corporate profitability, but that's just the world we live in. I think that the risks are well recognized by the global corporations, and they are sort of girding themselves with big cash reserves, with strategies of diversifying their supply chain with full recognition. This will be inefficient or rather less efficient. Earlier, clean energy transition and green economy have come up in our discussion concerning the power infrastructure of India. India is currently the third biggest greenhouse gas emitter globally. At COP26, it pledged to reach net zero emissions by 2070. I want to go back to that point a bit and ask, is climate financing an area the country is interested in? What are the opportunities and risks regarding investments into maturing spaces such as decarbonization technologies? Ben, would you like to provide any insights on this? Sure. So in order for India to reach net zero by 2070, there's a whole lot of work that needs to be done. So a lot of the coal plants need to be replaced or production needs to be enhanced by solar and by wind. Government is making a big push to move all two-wheelers to EVs. But in order for that to happen, you need the charging infrastructure, you need the battery swapping infrastructure. You've got industry, which needs to be completely transformed. You've got agriculture, where rice cultivation needs to be changed in order to capture the greenhouse gases emitted from rice plantations, reduce water usage, and then wastewater from municipal waste. That needs to be captured, then processed in order to reduce the methane emissions. And then the other piece of this here is the forest. So the good news is that India's forest cover has gone up in the last few years. We're talking about in order for us to hit net zero, I think that needs to go up significantly. The country has a long history of priority sector lending, but green, because of the lack of taxonomy and terminology, is still not part of that. So before we even talk about how much money India needs, we need to be able to classify that money in which sector it's going to. And after that, we're talking about three, four, five, maybe even six percent of GDP needed between now every year, all the way to 70. This ought to be the largest driver of growth and jobs and investment in India. I think there is incredible scope for cooperation between China and India in this regard. China's technology, India's know-how, we need these very two large blocks, which are basically the sources of some of the highest emissions on an aggregate level in the world, to come together. Before we end the episode, are there any final thoughts you would like to share with the audience? Tremendous entrepreneurial zeal underperformed and underdelivered in the past, and hopefully going forward will live up to the expectation of global investors in terms of 
being a source of global growth, taking decisive action on climate change, and showing the world that a peaceful, stable democracy that respects democratic norms and rule of law can succeed in a world which is increasingly fragmented and all sorts of norms are being broken. The current Gen Z and millennial population in India is extremely motivated. They believe that they can change things, they can make an impact. And what we're seeing in the workforce today are people that have come from all backgrounds that are now emerging and becoming entrepreneurs That's in the country. That's all we have so time for today. I remain very optimistic you, for the future ben of this country. Thank you, for sharing your views and insights. And thank you to our listeners for spending time with us. The series is supported by Equities First and is part of Asia Perspectives from Economist Impact. If you have any feedback or questions about this podcast or any work from Economist Impact, email us at asiaperspectives at economist.com. Please make sure to subscribe so that you receive updates when new podcast episodes become available. From the editorial team at Economist Impact, thank you for listening.